News Talk 1110-993 WBT. Pete Callender here, and joining me is the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, Mark Robinson. Welcome to the program, sir. How are you? Hey, how are you doing? I'm Thanks doing. Oh, absolutely. I'm doing all right. And uh, so uh, I wanted to run a couple of uh, topics by you and uh, get your thoughts on them. I, for I mean, obviously, the big one was uh, your announcement of the first uh, report back from your task force that was collecting information in K through 12 schools about uh, these indoctrination efforts, you know, all falling under the heading of critical race theory. Were you surprised by the reaction from Democrats in the General Assembly and the media? Uh, but I kind of repeat myself there. Um, like, were you surprised by their reaction to the report? Uh, not at all. Not at all. I expected them to, you know, be not, I'm not going to say expect them to be skeptical. I expect them to be critical because a lot of them are champions of indoctrination. They, they support it wholeheartedly because it goes uh, right along uh, with their agenda. Uh, they're not about education. They're about agendas. And they, you know, these some of these uh, left-leaning politicians are glad that they have champions in the classrooms that are pushing the things that they believe in and, quite frankly, pushing them as candidates and uh, building up the next crop of folks that are going to run to the polls and vote for them. So uh, they're, they're – they, they're critical of it because they don't want to see it come to an end. And quite frankly, a lot of them are in favor of it. So it, it, it tracks along with um, with sort of the voter ID debate, which usually starts off with opponents of voter ID saying that, uh, you know, vote fraud doesn't ever happen. And then when you show them examples that it does happen, then they say, well, it doesn't happen a lot. And then you, uh, you know, and they say it doesn't affect any outcomes. And they, so they, they constantly like retreat to different positions I sort of felt like I was watching that same thing unfold when uh, you went into the the Senate committee, where initial like the first reaction is this stuff doesn't happen, this isn't even happening, right. and then you sh- you you brought forth the evidence, right? Like this is happening, yeah. right? And then the retreat is to well, it's not happening a lot, it's not happening everywhere. So what do well, you say my, to that? Senator Chaudhry of Wake Wake County said it's a false news driven issue. Yeah. This guy's a, a senator from Wake County. That just happens to be the county with, that we got the most complaints from. <laughs> He's saying it's just a Fox News-driven issue. Uh, the people who are trying to deny it, as I said, are the people who are complicit in trying to make sure it continues because it helps them politically. It helps them socially. It helps their cause. And uh, that's why we're trying to stop it. Trust me, if this was happening on our side, I would want to stop it from, from happening, from folks being in the classroom trying to force people to vote for candidates that I like. No student or teacher should be forced into submitting to a social or political agenda. And that's what's happening in our classrooms far too often. It needs to come to an end. Folks who want to see it continue or want to deny it, uh, they're champions of it, and they want to keep it going because, like I said, it does them good. Now, some of the ways that teachers use curriculum, well, they will advise each other. They teach each other these these techniques, which is to go beyond what the curriculum states. And so they will, okay, you're going to tell me I have to, you know, teach about whatever topic. They then take that topic, and this is how you end up with the, you know, math is racist kind of stupidity, uh, because they will take a specific lesson that is in the curriculum or or a goal, and then they will layer in certain things from, you know, these, you know, anti-racism, critical race theory ideologies, and they kind of, they, they go beyond, they push beyond the curriculum. How, how do you get at that? 
it's going to be very tough to get at because, like we said, you know, like the whole the big topic right now is critical race theory. Critical race theory is not a thing. I describe critical race theory like this. It is a disgusting slime that when you try to grab it with your hands, it <laughs> squeezes through your fingers, but then you look at, look at your hand, it's left a nasty stain. <laughs> you can't really grab it. You can't really put your hand on it. It's something, it's an ideology that has to be combated from the inside, which is why it's so crucial that parents get involved in their children's education, that they go to school board meetings, that they go down to the school and meet their teachers, that they look at their children's classwork and go over it and learn the language of critical race theory and learn this, these leftist techniques of trying to weave this, uh, these uh, uh, social and political ideals into the classroom. Uh, it's important. That's why, like I said, it's important for parents to get involved. That is the only way we're going to root it out, is if parents come up into the classroom, meet the teachers, and keep an eye on what it is your children are being taught and what it is they're learning. Well, I mean, sometimes that, that might not even just showing up. I mean, what was the, there was that teacher out in Oregon. Did you see that guy with, like, the, the communist flags and everything in the classroom? Yeah. Right? Like, sometimes they're not as obvious as that. But you yeah. got to think, like, at some point a parent had to have walked into that classroom and saw that and said, right. oh, this is fine, right? I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't know who does that. That's right. That, that's part of, the, part of the problem is we have not uh, gotten deeply involved in education. We've trusted uh, educators to do the right thing, and by and large, educators do the right thing. But there are far too many uh, out there that don't. Even one is too much. But there's far more than one, and we need to stop those bad actors out there that are using the teacher profession to push their own social and political ideology. So uh, let me uh, uh, shift gears here with you, because for folks who may not be aware, you kind of uh, uh, became uh, uh, well-known because of that speech that you gave at the city council uh, about Second Amendment issues. So I was kind of curious what your thoughts are on the uh, veto that Governor Cooper did of the pistol purchase permit system that we have in this state. Well, it goes right along with my whole belief about the Democratic Party, Democratic Party. Uh, is, is, is truly the party that still holds on to the old vestiges of Jim Crow. And these laws that we see, these pistol permit laws, all these gun control laws. Uh, I have a good friend uh, who, who his slogan is, uh, all gun control is racist. And if you look at the roots of gun control, it absolutely is racist and classist. And uh, these pistol permits fly right into that. These pistol permits were created for the purposes of trying to keep guns out of the hands of, of black people to keep them from being able to fight back against the various groups like the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, and, Ku Klux Klan and other racist uh, groups, violent uh, racist groups. And uh, the, those old vestiges are still there. And it's just odd to me that Democrats like Roy Cooper are keeping them in place, continuing to restrict the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens uh, for nefarious purposes. So uh, it, just, it just goes hand-to-hand with what they always do. Democrats create these laws. And then Democrats turn around and continue to support these laws. So it's not shocking to me that he vetoed it. And uh, it it is, however, shocking to me that so many people are going along with it and and continue to support it. It is kind of funny, not ha-ha funny, but ironic how how little attention is paid. Like, could you imagine if you were supporting a Jim Crow era law? Like, (laughs) I think the coverage might be different. Oh, of course, of course. The uh, WRL and all the other news agencies will be all over it. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, the, it'd be the biggest story in the news. But uh, Roy Cooper supports a, a Jim Crow era 
uh, law and uh, nothing is said about it. So the Senate just passed the Emergency Management Act uh, fix, I, I call it. It's a fix. So uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that legislation if you were governor. Not that I'm trying to get anything out of you or lead you into a question about what your future plans are. But if you were governor, let's say, would you support reining in the Emergency Management Act and the powers that the governor has uh, taken? Uh I would because I'm going to tell you, I think, you know, the biggest, the, the most important thing that we have in our government uh, are checks and balances. And when you have a, a, a an executive who is, whose power is unchecked, you end up with what we ended up in North Carolina, where uh, we have a king, not a governor, who sends down these edicts and de- uh, destroys businesses and picks winners and losers in, in, in what we had. And it, it's not good. We cannot have that. You know, I would love to have the, the law stay like it is and be assured that someone with common sense and decency would make these rules and bring in a team of people to make these rules. But as we've seen now with uh, Governor Cooper, that's not going to always happen. So, yeah, I do think that some of those uh, those powers need to be limited. And when we're talking about making decisions about uh, businesses succeeding and failing and taking the power, constitutional powers out of people's hands to be able to gather and go to church, uh, those decisions need to be Number one, don't need to be made. And number two, if there is some kind of emergency that calls for those decisions to be made, they need to be made by a group of, of, of people across the board, not just by one man. The Council of State, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Welcome back anytime you'd like. Thank you. We appreciate you. All right. Take care. By the way, uh, what is going on in the North Carolina politics judiciary? I'm just watching what's uh, apparently in the Leandro school funding case. The judge in that case has now just decided he is more powerful than the legislature. He's going to force the legislature to spend whatever money he deems necessary for children to have a sound, basic education. This guy's out of control. Like, if you're not going to impeach a judge from the bench for this, while he's quoting, he's like, oh, this is constitutional. No, the separation of powers is constitutional. The power of the purse is in the legislature. That's constitutional. You don't get to dictate the line items in the budget, Judge Lee. Ridiculous. Meanwhile, you got two, apparently the rumor now up in Raleigh is that two of the Democrats on the state Supreme Court are going to try to uh, force to Republicans from participating in a case, and I think this might be a voter ID case, in order to prevent them from blocking anything that the Democrats want to do in overturning something in this regard. So, yeah, that's the, that's the Democrats running crazy. This is what happens when they don't even have power <laughs> in this state. This is what, like, people who were not here before Republicans took over, they really don't understand, I think, like, how bad Democrats were at governing. This should be a pretty good indication. Let me bounce over here to Patty. Hello, Patty. Welcome to the show. Patty. Hey, Pete. Hey. Uh, yeah, I'm just calling reference to Dr. Fauci's testimony. Yeah. Uh, in front of Congress. So Dr. Fauci was really specific the way he phrased his answer. Mm -hmm. He said, we did not fund coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology Mm -hmm. or something like that. 
Now, it's possible that was not done at the Wuhan Institute, but the other research uh, building that's in Wuhan. And so I don't know if that is important, if if that can cover him from what his intent was, was to lie. Mm-hmm. But I just kind of picked up on that. He was really specific the way he gave his answer. No, that's true. He That's exactly what he did. And Rand Paul would say something and he would object or disagree and then reframe what was said. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's exactly. usually yes. the yeah, that's usually the like he's he's saying we did not fund gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So there are there are a couple of things. We being like who is he talking about we? Is right. it NIH or is it NIAID? Is it uh, the direct funding of the gain-of-function research, is it gain-of-function research as he defines it? And is it right. gain-of-function research as he defines it being funded by one of these organizations at the specific lab that was mentioned, right? If oh. any one of those four things are, or if any one of those four things are incorrect, oh. then he's got an out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we well, I mean, but that's... But I don't. Sorry, uh, but, we're having a huge windstorm at my house, and my umbrellas are about to blow over. Oh, all right. Well, anyway, go tend, go tend to that. Thank you for taking my call. Certainly, Patty. Be safe. I appreciate it. I don't want her to lose her umbrellas. Um, I thought she was like reacting to something I said. I'm like, I rarely get that kind of a reaction. I mean, I I say things I think that are like really like insightful. I think every now and again, but I've never had that kind of whoa, like somebody really impressed. So. Yeah. Maybe they're not as insightful as I thought. Anyway, the University of North Carolina is offering a class called Global Whiteness. It involves student presentations on Trump and interracial hookups on campus. Campusreform.org obtained the fall 2021 syllabus covering the concept of race since the 19th century, but also contains what appears to be a revisionist narrative of American history, specifically World War II. The syllabus appears to place blame for the Pacific theater on America. It was our fault that we had to fight the Japanese, you see. The course overview describes World War II in the Pacific as, quote, the first global attack on white Anglo-American Hegemony, or hegemony. Japan's attempts to roll back European-American colonialism. That's, that was what Japan was trying to do. They were trying to roll back Europe, uh, Euro-American colonialism. That's why they attacked us at Pearl Harbor with the suicide attack. A previous iteration of the course, taught in 2019, included a class session titled Nasty Angry White People. Students in the course will be required to give a presentation based on one of 32 listed topics. And one of those topics they can choose is, how is Trump racist? <laughs> just not, not is Trump racist, but that's already assumed. It's how is he racist? Just start giving examples of it. This is, this is UNC. This is college material. Just keep throwing your money away at higher education establishments like this. It's ridiculous. Uh, All right, uh, let's head on over to the WBT News Center with Mark Muller. The Intercept published a report Monday 
following the release of 900 pages of materials that the National Institutes of Health was forced to turn over following a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit filed by The Intercept. The information pertains to the work of EcoHealth Alliance, an organization that used federal grant money to fund bat coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The president of EcoHealth Alliance, a guy by the name of Peter Dazak, has come under intense criticism and scrutiny over his ties to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and over his rush to dismiss claims that SARS-CoV-2 could have leaked out of the lab, calling it a conspiracy theory. But, as it turns out, it looks like we were actually funding gain-of-function research through the EcoHealth Alliance via the National Institute of Health, despite what Dr. Anthony Fauci told Senator Rand Paul and Congress on numerous occasions. Let me bounce over here to Josh. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the show. What's up? How you doing today, Pete? Hey, I'm all right. I will make my comment brief. I'm in the school line. Uh, Anthony okay. Fauci is the first uh, public figure that is going to expose a lot of things, in my opinion. Uh, I think this COVID thing, I, I believe it's real, but I believe there's been some so much dishonesty about it. And uh, there's other ways to treat this besides vaccines, even though I'm even though I'm vaccinated. There's other ways to treat this. And they've been so quiet about it and so silent about it. Uh, there's something there, there has to be a business interest somewhere has to be. So uh, that's my comment. And I'm going to get off here. All right, Josh, I appreciate it. I think I like I, I, I hold that out as a potential explanation for motives. No doubt. I don't dismiss the profit motive, right? When, you know, people say it's not about the money, like you could be, you know, you could be sure it's about the money, right? So I understand that. Uh, but I also think that for certain people, especially if you've spent your life working on something, you don't want to see it destroyed right before, you know, your your life is ending. And I think that that is also a powerful motivation as well. So I think when people just write off Fauci as saying, well, it's, you know, he, he is, he's going to make all this money or something. The guys, I mean, he's, isn't he like 80 something years old at this point? He's up there, right? Hey, he's healthy. And I, you know, God bless. I hope I live to be that age and look as good as he does when I get to be that age. So like more power to him on that front. But at, at that stage, you got to be thinking your about your legacy, right? And if your entire life's work has been built around this stuff, you want to see it mean something, don't you? You don't want your legacy to be, you know, the guy who funded the pandemic that killed 4 million people. You don't want to be that kind of uh, scientific warning in the world, you know, like that's the, a warning in the scientific world, right? You don't want to be that guy, I suspect. So, like, there are other motives that exist besides, you know, just the money. I think the money is, is absolutely the money is a powerful inducement, but it doesn't explain why some doctors, you know, refuse right now to try to do certain therapies that might work for their patients. This is what that doctor uh, Peter McCulloch talked about when he testified at the uh, Texas Senate. So let me get, let me play this um, this clip. This is the first of the two parts here. This is Jim Jordan. Uh, and this was back in June at a congressional uh, hearing. Here we go. I think. 
You got the audio? Hang on a second. Whoop, hang on. Let me re-rack it. You got the audio up? All right. I have the audio. PM, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Christian Anderson. Christian Anderson's a British researcher who's received numerous grants from NIH. Two really important sentences are in that email. Two sentences that get Dr. Fauci's attention. The first is this. The unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome. So one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features look engineered. Again, this is January 31st, 2020. Second sentence, Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. Email arrives 1032 to Dr. Fauci on January 31st, 2020. Two hours later, two hours later at 1229 in the morning, Dr. Fauci sends an email to his top deputy, Mr. Hugh Oshenkloss. Guys, worked for Fauci for 15 years, part of his inner circle. Sends it, subject line says, important in all capital letters. He attaches a paper on gain-of-function research written by Dr. Barrick and Dr. Xi. Dr. Xi, of course, is the so-called bat lady, bat woman, the lady who does research in the Wuhan China lab. This email, Dr. Fauci says, again, to his top deputy, it is essential that we speak this AM. Keep your cell phone on. Read this paper. You will have tasks to do today that must be done. Notice the intensity. Notice the focus. I mean, this is the house is on fire email here. Now, two hours after that, at 2.48 in the morning, Dr. Fauci's busy this morning. 12.29, that email he sent to Dr. Oshenklaas, his top deputy. Two hours later at 2.48 in the morning, he sends another email, this one to Robert Cadlick. Assistant HHS Secretary, Trump appointee, not part of his inner circle, and he attaches a different article to this email, one that says the virus came from an animal that downplays any lab leak theory. Now, again, notice the tone of this one. Bob, this just came out today. Gives a balanced view. Best, Tony. I mean, totally different from the previous. This is one like, oh, if you get a chance, read this. Gives a balanced view. So the tone is different, but also that sentence, gives a balanced view. It's not true either. That's just not accurate. This article downplays, as I said, the lab leak theory emphasizes evolutionary cause to the virus. What happens next? What happens next? Later that same morning, later that same morning at 11.47 a.m., Dr. Fauci's deputy gets back to him. I just want to read you this whole email. The paper you sent me, the one he sent him on that was written by the virologist from Wuhan, China, and Dr. Barrick. The paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain-of-function pause, but have since been reviewed and approved by NIH. Not sure what that means, since Emily, someone else who works for Dr. Fauci, is sure that no coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework, which, of course, is the oversight body that's supposed to approve any grant dollars going for gain-of-function research. No coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework, Final sentence, she will try to determine if we have any distant ties to this work abroad. She will try to determine if our fingerprints are on any of this. Right. All these emails happen in 13 hours. So 13 hours after Dr. Fauci gets the initial email from Christian Anderson saying, looks like this virus is engineered, not consistent with evolutionary theory. Dr. Fauci knows some important facts. First, Dr. Fauci knows there's a lethal virus on the loose that started in Wuhan, China. We're going to go over the other four facts in a minute. First, we're going to head on over to Boomer Von Cannon for a traffic update. 
this thing on? Hello? Oh, okay. Uh, News Talk 1110-993 WBT. Here's the rest of the uh, the Jim Jordan uh, discussion about these emails that they got about gain-of-function research. And, I mean, what he's outlining here is, like, the first 13 hours after, hey, look at this thing. What is this? And what does he do? He's like, hey, everybody, all hands on deck. I need you to do these things. Have to have it done. Like, his top deputy guy, like, you better make sure you get these answers. Find out, you know, do we have any kind of connection to any of this at all? And then he tells, like, someone from Trump world, oh, yeah, hey, here's an article. This is a pretty even approach, even-handed look at things. He says, Fauci knows five things. All these emails happen in 13 hours. So 13 hours after Dr. Fauci gets the initial email from Christian Anderson saying, looks like this virus is engineered, not consistent with evolutionary theory, Dr. Fauci knows some important facts. First, Dr. Fauci knows there's a lethal virus on the loose that started in Wuhan, China. Second, he knows the American taxpayers have funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. Third, he knows that the research grant didn't go through the required oversight board. Fourth, he knows the virus, quote, looks engineered and, quote, not consistent with evolutionary theory. And finally, fifth, Dr. Fauci knows he may have ties to this work in China. His fingerprints, in fact, may be on this. So what does Dr. Fauci do next? After he says, oh, whatever, what does he do next? He organizes a conference call for later that same day. I mean, this is the busiest 24 hours I think I've ever seen. He organizes a conference call, 12 people on the call, Dr. Fauci and 11 virologists from around the world, virologists who've gotten millions of American tax dollars over the past several years. Now look at this list. Here's the list of people. There's only two Americans on the list, Tony Fauci and one other. Most of them are from around the world, as I said. I think the first thing you notice is who's not on the call, who's not on the list. Is Dr. Cadlick on the list? The guy he sent the email to at three in the morning? Is Dr. Redfield the head of CDC? Dr. Girard, who's with us today, Assistant Secretary at HHS at the time? Dr. Burks, the lady who's soon to be COVID response coordinator? In fact, there's no one from the government on the call except Tony Fauci. Tony Fauci and 11 other individuals who got a bunch of American tax dollars over the years. What happened on the conference call? The short answer is we don't know. We don't know what they talked about. I mean, I, got a, I think we got a good idea. We don't know for sure. But we do know what happened four days later. Four days later, February 4th, 2020, Christian Anderson, the guy who started it all, who said the virus looks engineered, Christian Anderson said this four days later. The, crack, the quote, the crackpot theories going around at the moment relate to this virus being somehow engineered. That is demonstrably false. Close quote. What? In four days, this guy went from this looks engineered to now that's demonstrably false. Four days, he went from this isn't consistent with evolutionary theory. Now we know it's totally evolutionary. But it gets even better. It gets even better. Mr. Anderson and three of the other people on this call write an article a few weeks later that says COVID is not a laboratory construct. And while they're writing that article, there's an email from March 6th where Mr. Anderson offers to let Dr. Fauci edit the article before it's published. (laughs) And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. When the article is published, Dr. Fauci cites it at a White House press conference when he is asked by a reporter about the origin of the virus. Cites the very article he put in motion on the conference call, and he was allowed to edit. So that is what you call idea laundering. 
You run it through somebody else, but it's basically your idea, right? You run it through this other thing, and then you cite it as the evidence when you get asked about it. At the White House, where he's supposed to be giving the American people the truth, he references an article that he manufactured. Now, maybe I'm wrong about all this. Maybe it didn't work out this way. I think I'm right. Maybe it didn't work out this way. But it would have been nice, Mr. Chairman, if Dr. Fauci would come today and answer our questions. He could have come here and defend himself, but he didn't have the courage to do it. And you know else who wouldn't come? Remember that email about the P3 framework? We invited Dr. Hassel to come too. He's the individual who chairs that oversight board. We invited him to come today too, and he wouldn't come. They, they, I, I'm convinced these guys knew right from the get-go what the truth was, and they misled the American people. Oh, here's the other thing. You know that conference call? That conference call? We got the emails regarding the conference call from February 2nd. All these guys, all these guys were emailing back and forth. They were on that conference call. Here's what we got on the FOIA request. Here's all their emails. Every single thing is redacted. <laughs> Every single thing is redacted about what took place in that conference call. Because I'm convinced it was at that conference call where they said, we got to cover our tracks. And again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But Dr. Fauci could have been sitting right there and answering our questions, and he wouldn't come today. Yeah. I yield back. All right, there you go. That was Jim Jordan from June. But it's Jim Jordan, and, you know, well, he doesn't wear a blazer, so we can't believe anything he says. Right. Because it's about the narrative, and the underlying narrative is always the same, that Republicans don't know what they're talking about, Republicans are motivated by evil, and the Democrats are... You know, the party for the working person, for the everyday Joe. They're the party for the people. They're doing things that is, you know, they're, the stuff that they do is motivated purely out of the goodness of their hearts. It's, it's embedded in so many of these approaches to journalism. It's like you, once you see it, you never unsee it, right? And that's what Matt Taibbi was talking about in the quote that I uh, read to you from earlier. There's, they, they don't know how to see anything else now. They've become the resistance. And we are all worse off for it. Because I remember the article uh, that Jordan was talking about where they came out and said, no, this doesn't show any signs of being engineered. I read that article. I believed that article because it came from people that had expertise that were, you know, renowned in their field. And then it all turned out to be not true. So like the undermining of credibility and confidence in our institutions. It's, I, I mean, like this is the, pro, this is the real challenge now going forward. This is what post truth America looks like, right? Where we don't know who to believe. I get stuff all the time. I get stuff all the time from people, from listeners. They email me links to stuff and I have to then start, investigating every single author of the piece before I can believe anything that I'm reading. There are, there are only a few outlets that I can actually read and be fairly confident that what they're giving me is as close to the truth as they know it. And for a lot of the other stuff, like I just got one here on, on Twitter, you need to read the nationalpulse.com. Because, like, uh, who is this? Uh, Natalie G. Winters. She's been on this for months, long before anybody ever heard of Peter Daszak. Right. Well, I mean, 
go pull my podcasts. I've been talking about this for a year and a half. They've been looking at the lab leak theory, and I've been watching the developments occur. You know who else has done a lot of good work on this? Jim Garrity at National Review. I trust Jim Garrity. He started breaking down, like you, because you can actually go through like public records, you know, as they are in China. You can find these public records, and uh, they were advertising for positions at these labs right at the same time people like just disappeared, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Like they got sick and died. A bunch of people got sick. So Jim Garrity has done a really good timeline of events, I thought. Um, and so that was always, uh, that's always been a good resource for me on this. But yeah, I don't know how this stuff, I don't know how we expect it to break through. Now, maybe Joe Biden is going to take some questions at his uh, big announcement tomorrow on COVID. Maybe he does that. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath for that either. All right. Stick around. Brett Winterbill's up next on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I do appreciate it. We'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.